0: This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brennan. Sustainable Development Goal 4 is all about education. Under the goal, there are seven targets, ranging from providing equitable access to education worldwide to making sure students have relevant skills for the future. Perhaps the most revolutionary yet incredibly complex indicator is number 4.7. My guest today, Aaron Bennevot, takes us through the history and future of Target 4.7. How did the international community even agree on such a revolutionary target? But Aaron warns us about the future of the target, given that there is no consensus on how to measure it across countries.
1: What's the danger of saying, well, we tried to measure it but it's not so hot The measure we came up with so we yeah we've got some data and then when countries look at it they go this is really not very serious so then there's this kind of reaction to say somebody's tried to measure it they've done a fairly poor job then they question the whole met- right. the strategy and they kind of question the indicator and they question the measurement so then you end up maybe going backwards rather than right. going forward. So that's a little bit the danger here.
0: Aaron Benevant is a professor in the Department of Educational Policy and Leadership, at the School of Education, University at Albany, State University of New York. He was previously the director of the Global Education Monitoring Report. Aaron Benevant, welcome to Fresh Ed. I'm very glad to be here. So to start, Aaron, I want to read SDG four point seven. And I'd like to hear what your reactions are. So the target reads, By 2030, ensure that all learners acquire the knowledge and skills needed to promote sustainable development, including, among others, through education for sustainable development and sustainable lifestyles, human rights, gender equality, promotion of a culture of peace and nonviolence, Global citizenship and appreciation of cultural diversity and of culture's contribution to sustainable development. What are your thoughts?
1: I remember uh, the first time that I read that. And, you know, it's kind of like you have to take at least two breaths to get through the whole thing. (laughs) And I also remember saying, typically, when I would uh, present this to various people that I would come into contact with, it seems like they everything that they didn't have in the first six goals that they put into goal four seven. So it, the sense that one have is like everything but the kitchen sink they put in here. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the other thing that I can recall is that when my colleagues who were involved in, uh, let's say, gathering data and preparing information that, you know, for monitoring purpose purposes, they would look at this target and they basically started laughing. Because they thought this has got to be the most, uh, you know, the feasibility of coming up with any kind of information systematic about any of these issues uh, is just inconceivable. So it was kind of laughed off. Uh, And so, you know, many times at the beginning, there was a certain, you know, people understood that these are important concepts. But on the other hand, um, you can't be serious that, uh, that you're going to include this as a target <laughs> I... in, the new, in the new agenda. Yes, it's aspirational. Yes, this is a, something that we're trying to kind of uh, move uh, policies of uh, countries in, in a particular direction. But, uh, you know, and if, if we're trying to hold governments to account to some extent, if they're actually committing themselves to such a target, what does this mean if you have no... Kind of systematic information. So there was this kind of ambivalence. It's lovely to have wonderful things, uh, these concepts, but they aren't very serious. And I think it took quite a few months uh, where that attitude, this kind of poo-poo attitude toward 4.7 began to change for all kinds of different reasons. Um, there were, uh, first of all and foremost, there were a lot of people who understood this is actually a very serious target. Um, typically when I would present it, I would say to people, when you look at it and you compare it to uh, educational policies in the past, this is actually a revolutionary target. Um, in no previous kind of uh, you know kind of global educational policy regime, has there been any goal or target that speaks, as it were, to the humanistic, moral, social purposes of
0: education. Usually it's more economic.
1: It's, well, it's not only economic, it usually was about, you know, getting kids into school. Access. You know, access, making sure they complete a full cycle, mainly primary and secondary education, um, trying to make sure that inequalities are, you know, you reach gender parity, a little bit maybe uh, other kinds of issues. They always talk about adult literacy, but that's another kind of problematic target. Um, increasingly, they talked about early childhood. Wonderful. Um, and then there was this kind of vast, you know, category of quality. But quality was, you know, very much kind of all over the place. Yeah. Historically, quality was all about inputs. You know, are teachers well qualified? Are there a sufficient number of teachers? Do kids have enough textbooks? You know, how much do they spend per pupil? Um, uh, you know, how large are the classrooms? Um, do they have roofs over them? Do they have you know, heating in the winter? Do they have uh, right. air conditioning? You know, do they have access to textbooks? Nobody really thought very much about what happens in the classroom. That's and is that
0: they're... where 4.7 comes in?
1: Well, 4.7 opens up um, this issue about, I mean, much of this new agenda is looking at outcomes. So it's much more about learning. Learning is really all over the place here. Learning, you know, basic uh, reading skills, achieving a certain minimum proficiency in reading and mathematics, improving literacy, digital skills, uh, employability skills, so in fact they have this kind of economic uh, relation. But this target also talks about learning, it talks about knowledge and skills needed to promote sustainable development, including among all kinds of other different things. So it's also about outcomes, um, but it talks about outcomes that have never been on the agenda of these uh, things. So in that sense, it is really without precedent. The other thing to pay attention about the target is that it talks about all learners. And so it's not just about learners in school. It's also learners outside of school. So it could be uh, youth outside of school. It could be adults. I mean the, the fact that most people, when they think about it, and many of the programs have been directed toward, you know, educate. How do you promote education for sustainable development or global citizenship education in, let's say, primary and secondary schools? That already is a narrowing of the intent of the target that actually opens right. it up for all
0: uh, all learners. So it's, I mean, so on the one hand, it's it's comprehensive in terms of who they're targeting. Yes, but I mean, even. There's are so many different terms in that target. Yes. And so one target, or one of the, the terms, global citizenship education, I have a student who is struggling. She <laughs> struggles with this idea and has done this massive literature review mm-hmm. of how all different academics and development agencies talk about it. Mm-hmm. And she comes back to me and she says, I'm more confused now than ever. Mm-hmm. So how on earth does the UN or UNESCO even begin to say, With just that one term, how do they then begin to say, how do we measure it? How can we agree upon particular measures or indicators of that target?
1: Mm -hmm. So, I'll answer your question, but I need to do a little bit of a backtrack here. Um, There are terms here that have a real history Mm. in international politics. These actually go back quite a few decades. So one of the things that it took me a while to figure out, and I partly because there really needs to be a history of how this thing was put together, is that people did see this target as a way of echoing concerns that had animated discussions decades ago and bring it under a kind of a new umbrella or a new framing. So um, a bunch of these terms actually have their own kind of individual history, and you could reconstruct it. You would need to do almost an archaeology of these different Mm -hmm. terms. And to your point, each of these terms does not have, by and large, a consensus around how they should be defined, how they're conceived. Um, So not only among scholars, but even among international organizations, there isn't necessarily a consensus. Now, you could say that That is something that is needed precisely when you bring around a table people who come from all these different backgrounds, from all these different cultures that speak so many different languages, that part of the way that you build collaboration and a sense of um, solidarity around a document is to use terms that are understood by different people in different ways so that you can at least touch upon their importance, but still allow people to move forward. On the other hand, if you're an academic, this is undermining, especially an academic who's trying to quantify. So, I mean, an academic who gets global citizenship would say, well, what are the different dimensions of global citizenship? Uh, What are the precise definitions that I'm going to use? How do I take a conceptual definition and operationalize? And I find something that there's a fairly good alignment between kind of the measurement or the operational definition and the conceptual definition. Um, and then you, you know, find different ways, different measurement strategies to see if you can come up with, you know, various, uh, parts of, uh, global citizenship. The other thing that's a little bit probably less known around this target is that there have been countries that have been pushing certain terms politically. And other countries that have been pushing other terms, and so this is also a kind of a a way of bringing countries that have different, let's say, interests, to get them to agree on a single target.
0: Do you have an example? Like what well, countries the, were? the
1: example here is that um, the term education for sustainable development has mm-hmm. an older history. It's been supported and through funding and through all kinds of other mechanisms by the Japanese. Uh, In fact, it's really interesting that if you, I guess, we, you know, for the purposes of the 2016 uh, Global Education Monitoring Report, we had a Japanese intern who actually read the Japanese literature around sustainable development and helped us to understand the very idiosyncratic history of the term in, you know, Japanese, uh, academic circles, which is not widely understood. Most people think of this as like a Scandinavian topic or a concept that uh, you know, started whenever, uh, let's say the 1980s, the 1990s, but in Japan it has a very different kind of, of a history. But the Japanese politically promoted this, okay? And then you have the Koreans, and they've been the big backers of global citizenship. Mm. Uh, and so the notion of global citizenship For the Koreans has been a kind of engagement with the world. It aligns in various ways with, let's say, the notion of sustainability, but they're using a different concept, so it becomes kind of an umbrella term within which there are, you know, elements that are not all that dissimilar to some of the things under ESD. And they also put quite a little, you know, substantial money kind of on the table, as it were, to promote this particular term. Uh, And it's, Incorporation, let's say in in the, the global educational targets. Right. So that's a very interesting. I mean, and then there are other countries that right. promoted more or less. There are some countries that don't even want to use the term global citizenship because they find it really an anathema to their. You know, education should promote loyalty, patriotism, national identity, mm. a sense of belonging to a you know to a country. We did a study, looked at textbooks. You know, there's the vast majority of textbooks, let's say, that do history make no mention or very little mention of countries outside of the borders of, uh, you know, the the country in question. So, uh, which is one of the reasons, for example, that uh, the OECD, when they've thought about measuring something like this, have used a different term, which is global competence and not global citizenship, because they know there's probably less political... A contestation right. or, let's say, antagonism or antipathy toward, let's say, the notion of global competence relative to the notion of global right. citizenship. So
0: it's, I mean, it's interesting that there is this this international politics sort of demands this consensus building by adding terms that can be understood differently or different terms that have different histories in these different member states. And then you sort of create this long string of these terms like 4.7 to, in a sense, appease or, or, you know, support everyone's idea and get people to adopt the SDGs in the end. But like you said, there's that academic side. And so it seems like there's going to be an inherent tension for when the UNESCO Institute of Statistics has to actually operationalize these targets.
1: So here the way to kind of understand it is that um, that all the 17 SDGs and 169 targets, including 4.7, were part and parcel of this long protracted negotiation leading up to September 2015 when the 193 member states of the UN adopted the the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. The negotiations that, that preceded that were run by were run out of New York, they were run by representatives of usually ministries of foreign affairs. Um, International agencies were not involved deeply. There was lots of member state kind of, uh, in other words, if you had international agencies involved in some of these things, number one, we wouldn't have as many SDGs, we would have many fewer targets, they would be formulated quite differently. I mean, the, the education sector, was not really, I mean, the the big decision by the education sector happened in May of 2014, when they got together in Muscatoman. And at that point, they had to make a critical decision, because up until then, there had been these two parallel tracks. There had been the Millennium Development Goals, and there had been the Education for All Goals. And these were running parallel to each other. They were different agendas. And in Muscatoman in May, they decided to bring them together and to put their Kind of agreement around this new post 2015, you know, they didn't have a name for it yet, but the post 2015 consensus that was um, beginning to evolve in New York, which means that they were going to give up, in some sense, their control over determining the education agenda, because now you had lots of other people, mm. many of them, you know, having a voice in New York rather than being in Paris and being. So the only way that they kind of tried to bring more of their, of the views of the education sector was to, first of all, uh, the the next big meeting they had was the Incheon meeting in May of 2015. And that was now building consensus of what the formulations would be of the targets. And then they could come to New York and say, listen, we had... 160 180 heads of state we had civil society everybody contributed it was a very international process and here's what the international education community believes should be the key formulations so here the people in New York had to take uh, you know pretty close attention it wasn't an international agency it was international agencies convening a meeting in which member states were very present who negotiated a very you know difficult text It was called the 2030 Framework for Action, in which these formulations began to take shape. So to your point then, after this, so when they finally agreed to this crazy architecture (laughs) of 169 (laughs) targets, the next big issue was how do you begin to develop something more concrete and the indicators of the measurement. And there the process kind of shifted. So it no longer involved, as it were, politicians and and ministries of foreign affairs it did to some extent but now we're talking about statisticians and the un statistical commission and so they developed this agency it's called the interagency for uh, um i forget what it's called the internet <laughs> interagency of um and but it's made up of statisticians and people right. who really are number crunchers and they're the ones who began to formulate the the targets uh, mm-hmm. the the indicators and there are 230 indicators, and um, it's a very different uh-huh. kind of a process, okay? Wow. So this is what now they're trying to measure. They're right. not trying to measure the target, they're trying to measure the global indicator, Right.
0: okay? And there's agreement on that indicator?
1: Up until now there's been agreement that this is the, the first t- the indicator that they agreed on. Uh, we'll come back to that in a moment. <laughs> but I just want to point out that in some ways this global indicator has reduced a little bit the scope of the target. Now we are mainly talking about things that are going on in formal education. So we're not including all learners. Right. Instead of looking at the outcome, so now we're looking at input. Are they mainstreaming these areas, these thematic and topical areas into policies, curricula, uh, teacher preparation, and uh, assessment.
0: Yeah, so we're not worried about what the student learns in the well, after finishing school. Let's or just say in the how abs- they act
1: in the absence of any kind of existing methodological instrument to actually capture the outcome of this kind of a target, then they rely on the input. Right, and it's a fair point, but it, it basically assumes precisely what you're saying that the more a country would mainstream. GCD, Global Citizenship Education, and ESD, in their policies, in their curricula, in their teacher training, in their assessments, other things being equal, it should it should basically produce students who have more knowledge and skills. Right. Notice by the way, it doesn't talk about attitudes and dispositions, yeah. which many people argue are probably as important, if not more so, in this particular area. You could maybe kind of take the idea of skills and say, well, there's hard skills and there's soft skills and maybe yeah. kind of bring it in the back door. but The assumption that the countries that are mainstreaming this into these kind of uh, policy areas and and whatnot are going to produce students who are going to have more knowledge and skills, and these are not epiphenomena that, you know, they're just going to do it for a test and then forget everything, but rather they're going to carry it with them, you know, uh, into adulthood, that's a pretty big assumption. And it's not like we have a lot of evidence around
0: it, right? (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, the assumption that, you know, you might know a lot of information about climate change. Exactly. But you're still going to go buy the gas guzzling SUV car. So, you know, we can all agree that climate change is happening, but we're still going to hop on the airplane and travel all over the world.
1: We can know about the science around it. We can even think that it's important. We can have the right attitude, but it doesn't mean we change our, right. our behavior.
0: It also sort of misses that the students in Australia who are protesting today, recently, mm. all about they want more climate change, education, but the government is saying no. And so the <laughs> students are protesting. And to me, that sort of symbolizes global citizenship. They are participating as active citizens on a topic of global importance, and that also wouldn't be captured in any of the indicators or in the indicator of SDG 4.7. It would not. Yeah,
1: And it actually brings up a very important point. Again, the limits of the indicator Because even for young people, students and young adolescents, there are lots of extracurricular activities or out-of-school activities. They could be going to museums. They could be going to scouting. They could be doing all kinds of youth organizations. They could be demonstrating in the streets. They can learn a lot, let's say, through various non-formal educational activities or even informal activities, which are very incredibly important with respect to the knowledge they gain, the attitudes they have, the skills they may have, and that's certainly not captured in the current
0: indicator. So you have, you know, been an academic and then you worked with UNESCO uh, as the director of the Global Monitoring Report, or the Global Education Report, or (laughs) what is it called? Global Education Monitoring Report. That's right, okay, the GEM Report. (laughs) <laughs> um, more, indicate, more 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 uh, acronyms and yeah. terms that are hard to keep track of when you're dealing with international politics. Mm. Um, and now you are back in the academic world, but you still maintain a strong foothold in the UNESCO sort of policy debates uh, and the SDGs in particular. So I want to ask you, what is the role of academics in this sort of convoluted process of not necessarily formulating the SDGs, but three years after their adoption, what have academics done or what could they do or what can they do in the future to sort of help us accurately understand if these SDGs are being met or maybe providing us some sort of critical angle on areas that the SDGs are simply missing?
1: I think academics can play a lot of different roles. Um, Let me begin from the point of view of having been the director of a major international report on education, certainly those reports would not have um, been uh, possible if not for incredible contributions and input that we received from kind of academic experts from around the world. So partly what the team would do in advance and as they prepared and thought through, I mean, even even at the level of when we put together a concept note, we would involve academics through various kinds of consultations, and they would say you should look at this; these questions need to be looked at. You know, we know of some new studies, so there was lots of input there. After we had a kind of a detailed outline, and we began to work on a zero draft, there were decisions about who do we go to to ask them to carry out some kind of research or, um, you know, desk top, you know, desk reviews of of various kinds of issues or research around it. So we would commission anywhere from, I don't know, 30 to 50 different, you know, background papers for a report. And by and large, these are being done by, you know, people with academic degrees. They're, they're not always in universities. Some of them are working in, um, you know, research institutes and other kinds of places, but they're all very kind of scholarly informed. So the report could, would not be possible, if not for all these inputs, and that included both the thematic part, but as we're talking about now, the monitoring port, uh, uh, part. So when we began to think about how do we monitor target uh, you know, 4.7, what steps do I need to take as the director of the report? Who do I need to contact? Who might have information that I can use? So we, you know, we, we knew that the International Bureau of Education in Geneva is a warehouse of, I mean, a, a storehouse of just tons of curricular information. So we kind of turned to them and asked them if they could support a process that they could go through some of the materials. We knew people that were involved in textbook research that we reached out to. We knew people who have been looking at teacher training programs in different parts of the world. We also thought about asking them if they could be involved. Um, you know, there were ways for us to look at different policies uh, from different sources. So we thought like academics, because we tried to think about, okay, here's the concepts, these are the concepts that are in the target, here's a little bit what we're trying to, you know, figure out. So, you know, what kind of content analysis might we be able to do uh, once we would have access to certain kinds of documents or official statements? We need somebody to carry this out. We need to develop a bit of a coding scheme that we would agree uh, we would work with the academics on. Um, and so we that was kind that's of what a, you did. That was what we did. Yeah. You know, that was what we did. Is that uh, how they measure this now? No, that was what we did for that report, <laughs> okay? Because keep in mind, you know, we're it was an independent report. Um, UIS at that point had not yet, you know, figured out what or UNESCO had not yet figured out because they were also uh, the, the agency that had the responsibility for measuring this. So partly UNESCO with the help of UIS had yet to figure out how they would go about kind of strategically measuring it. It came a little bit later but we were also we were already on our pathway to kind of figuring out some of these things we could do more systematically some of the, some of them you know would take a lot more time but we thought that for the purposes of the report it's worthwhile to try to capture precisely what the global indicator, uh, indicator talks about. At some point in UNESCO, somebody came up with the brilliant idea that UNESCO has this responsibility from you know some decades before that there had been this international agreement that was agreed by UNESCO member states around several of the concepts that are embedded in 4.7 and part of this agreement indicated that UNESCO should take stock in some kind of a survey once every four or five years and the idea was that if you're going to carry out a survey anyway on some of these themes why not expand it to now mm-hmm. include things like global citizenship and education for sustainable development that weren't there in 1974 when this recommendation was adopted, but could be argued you could add it, right? which made sense. Mm-hmm. So now what they were going to do is to say, we have a mechanism, we have the mandate to carry this mechanism out. Member states are meant to give us feedback on these particular things. We're going to expand it a little bit so that it more closely aligns with target 4.7 and that's the decision that was made. And then they worked with UIS to kind of figure out what would be the concrete kind of questionnaire. What would it look like? And, you know, what would the questions ask the member States to uh, respond to, you know, they basically took the global indicator and mapped out a questionnaire that had some as it were, you know, you're asking a request. You know, can you provide? So,
0: but it, it. but methodologically, it's very different from doing some sort of content analysis using using a coding scheme of documents put out by the government versus asking people's perceptions based on a questionnaire.
1: Well, it is, I wouldn't say it's perceptions. It basically, it's asking countries to self-report. Right. So it's not exactly subjective. It's but it is saying. You're allowing the countries to tell you what they're doing without actually validating that information through some other means. So the countries can say, yeah, we're doing all these wonderful things, uh, and that's what they write on the questionnaire, and nobody's really checking it. There's no
0: validation of it? No,
1: there's no validation.
0: So what, what incentive would a country have to sort of say they're not doing any of this?
1: well because um, there's a certain level of transparency and in the end all this information is going to come out and you know there there's governments that are reporting because it's usually the governments that are reporting but then you would have NGOs in the country saying the government's reported that they are mainstreaming human rights in their curricula we don't think that that's the case <laughs> um, you know in other words people could take them to tax and really know what's going on in the country so you know governments they can't really pull the wool over everybody's eyes. There's lots of ways in which. And the more you would do this, the more it would, let's say, become institutionalized and you would see trends over time. So, But the fact of the matter, I mean, I haven't seen all the data. There's certainly a certain degree of this is what we intend to do, <laughs> not what we're actually doing. So there's a sense that uh, countries are over-reporting hmm. the extent to which these things are being mainstream. And it's also like, you know, what does it mean to mainstream? Mm, So it could be, yeah, we have a sentence in the textbook that says global citizenship. It's mainstream, you know. And someone else who has, you know, for for five grades of primary education, the whole hour devoted every week to global citizenship or something along those lines that, you know, evolves and has a very elaborate curriculum. Those things are treated equally in that kind of a response. Because the countries are basically right. saying, I, I mainstreamed here and I mainstreamed there, there's no difference. So for an, from an academic point of view, you would never get it published, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because somebody would come along and say, this is just, you know, this is not uh, valid information. When we did our monitoring thing, you know, we basically say, here are the documents that countries are producing. We have a coding scheme, we're going to do a content analysis of, uh, of the documents. Uh, You know, you can be, the the analysis can look at it more superficially, more in-depth, but it basically is based on, you know, what they produce. It could be a textbook, it could be a national curricular framework, it can be an explicit policy, and you look at it, and you don't, the countries don't, you know, the countries determine the the documents, but you, still doesn't tell you what goes on in the classroom, but you are using your own kind of objective um, measurement strategy to determine is it present? Is it absent? To what extent? Uh, and then you can report on it accordingly.
0: Um, so is this like a, the first step? I mean, I, I mean, because it's interesting, like you said, that the 4.7 was quite revolutionary mm-hmm. to even include it. Mm-hmm. And yes, there's all sorts of measurement issues, as you've discussed in depth. But, you know, the, the optimist in me would say, okay, this is sort of the first step we're building it up, that survey is certainly not perfect, but maybe there'll be future steps that we can take and make it more robust, add additional measurement tools or strategies or future indicators, I don't know if that's even possible. But, I mean, is that would that be sort of the, not necessarily from an academic point of view, but from the international politics point of view, this is sort of pushing countries in a way to consider these aspects of education that, you know, people think are important? So
1: yes and no. The fact that these issues and topics have been placed on the agenda is important in and of itself. Right. And it opens up all kinds of different actors, governmental, non-governmental, academics, you know, all kinds of civil society organizations to say, listen, you've signed on to this agenda, this is one of the targets we think this is really important what are you doing about it so regardless of all the reporting international comparability whatever having it as a target putting it on the, an agenda having groups potentially um, getting organized to say we promote these things we think they're important right. we think our government should be more involved in them it produces all kinds of interesting activity at the mm-hmm. national level the absent the target would probably it may still exist but may not exist as extensively right. and wouldn't have the same legitimacy as it currently does because it's the target right so that's important but the other part of this would be to say listen the things that policymakers pay attention to are the things you can count and things you can demonstrate that you can you know maybe that they don't agree with how you do the counting and how you build your index and all kinds of other different things and your methodological strategy But when you produce a number or some index um, it's a way of getting countries to be more proactive and to indicate beyond just signing their name to a piece of paper they're doing something about it. The naming and shaming. Right, but um, I do think it is important, I mean, I do think that having some quantification or some systematic assessment using even qualitative data about these issues helps to promote them, helps to keep them on the agenda, and helps to kind of secure commitments and policies and and resources to make sure that they are sustained. What's the danger of saying, well, we tried to measure it, but it's not so hot, the measure we came up with, so um, we, yeah, we've got some data, and then when countries look at it, they go, come on, you know? This is this is really not very serious. So then there's this kind of reaction to say, somebody's tried to measure it. They've done a fairly poor job. I mean, you know, I, I can give you anecdotal information of countries that know they're very seriously committed to some of the topics in 4.7, and the way in which some of the data got, um, you know, presented or, or kind of organized in the current measurement strategy, it just doesn't. Match. Yeah. It doesn't align very well. So then they kind of they, then they question the whole method, the right. strategy, and they kind of question the indicator and they question the measurement. So then you end up maybe going backwards oh, rather than right. going forward. So that's a little bit the danger
0: here. So how would you change the measurement strategy if you could, you know, have a magic wand?
1: Yeah. Um, first and foremost, I probably would go back to the intent of the target, which is trying to capture the outcome. I would want, I'd really want to invest in developing modules that were, let's say, culturally sensitive, or they could be used in different ways, uh, you know, different, for different topics under 4.7, but they would be modules that countries could maybe um, integrate into their current assessment um, frameworks or systems that would try to tap into the extent to which learners both in school and maybe out of school, have acquired the knowledge and skills around some of the issues here. Probably what you would want to do is set up some kind of a platform that countries would be expected to place into the platform. And then, you know, UNESCO, someone else, could be commissioned to basically go through them or come up with a strategy because you'd have to know quite a lot of languages um, to to make a determination and maybe it would have to be you know two different coders with some yeah. Inter reliability coefficient and so on and so <laughs> forth But I mean you can do it I mean, because we're, we're doing it in for another study now now that I'm no longer part of the team but we're doing it for uh, something similar uh, um, but it involves precisely that compiling documents at different levels that allow and then using a coding scheme that you've developed and systematically going in and trying to determine you know how much of a particular theme or topic is embedded in the in the yeah. intended uh, thing and you know then you could get to this question which is what we started with I mean is there the more you have of the input the more it's being mainstream in the documents does it actually show up in the you know the, act, the actual knowledge right. and, but that would be somewhere down the line.
0: Well we'll have to bring you back on I mean we have 12 years until 2030 <laughs> We're only three years in, and we're still talking about indicators. The global indicators that this
1: agency, the UN agency, has been um, have, have developed these two hundred and thirty indicators. They have; they're classified into three different tiers. So, when you have an indicator that the methodology and the definition around it are fairly well developed, and that data being collected for most countries in the world, it's called Tier One. Right. When there's a methodology that's fairly well agreed upon, but there isn't global coverage, it's tier two. And when there's a concept or a global indicator around which the conceptualization and the definition and the global coverage is lacking, it's a tier three. What's the danger or what's the what's the what's about to happen? The current global indicator for four point seven is a Tier 3 indicator. And as part of the UN kind of assessment of how progress is going forward in terms of the SDGs, they are looking at SDG 4 in a big high-level political uh, event in July of this coming year. And in anticipation of this evaluation, this agency is going through and looking at all the global indicators that have Tier 3 status. And it's quite possible that this global indicator is going to be jettisoned really yeah just like that they're going to basically say you haven't been able to develop a clear methodology um there's nothing global in scope um start again
0: so we're just going to get rid of
1: it there's uh there's a significant probability that the global indicator that we've been talking about about mainstreaming in policies and is basically gonna be but then out. that
0: would mean that target 4.7 is not going to be able to be achieved or not
1: well no, it can still be countries can make well, progress but, but there's gonna be no indicator for it in, in other words though the global indicator that is now there yeah will be uh, will be wow. will vanish and I don't exactly know what they're going to do will they come up with something else will they give uh, you know the UNESCO and a mandate to say, come back in six months and give us another indicator. I'm not sure exactly what they're going to do. Uh, but there's a real danger that this is going to happen. I mean, I have been informed by people who are quite knowledgeable that um, the, uh, the strategy that UNESCO has attempted at this point is to try to find ways to move this particular indicator that currently has been defined from a Tier 3 to a Tier 2 status, in which case it wouldn't be jettisoned. But they haven't succeeded so far. Mm. Um, so that's what I'm saying. It is quite likely you don't have to wait a couple of years. Uh, we might be able to come back in a couple of weeks, <laughs> literally. And I will tell you, the global indicator they've had for 4.7 has been dropped. In which case, lots of people think target 4.7 is wonderful, but there's absolutely no... Cur- there will be, they'll have to come up with a whole new conceptualization and, and kind of concrete measurement strategy to go back and figure out how to do, uh, how to measure uh, 4.7.
0: That's a real
1: possibility.
0: So, I mean, we'll have to bring you back on to give us an update about where we're going and how we're doing. So, Aaron Benavant, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. My pleasure. Aaron Benavon is a professor in the School of Education, University at Albany, State University of New York. Today's episode of Fresh Ed was made possible through the support of the Graduate School of Education at the University of Tokyo and Education International. After recording my conversation with Aaron, the interagency and expert group on SDG indicators met to consider the way in which target 4.7 is measured. The group decided not to use the current measurement without substantial revision. They agreed to review the measurement strategy again in 2020. What this means is that the international community continues to be unsure how to measure target 4.7, which many people consider to be the most important target in the education global goal. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed is made possible through listener donations. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba. And original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.